Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I am the founder of 1000 Hours Outside and what an absolute treat. Dr. Peter Gray is back with us. Thank you for being here. I'm very happy to be here. Dr. Peter Gray joined us in September of 2021, episode number 11, and we talked about his book, his transformational book, Free to Learn, a book that changed my life and changed the life of our family. And so, so excited to have you back. I was perusing through your new website. Congrats on your new website. Thank you. PeterGray.org. And I came across something that I'd never heard of before, your curriculum, and do you pronounce it Vitae? Yeah, Vita, yeah. Your curriculum Vita. This is something that I'm going to link to it. People have to go to this. This is an academic term. It really means a resume, but we professors call it a curriculum Vita. <laughs> yeah, and it's 18 pages of all of these things that you have done, all of these accomplishments, all of these articles that you have written. And it was really cool to look through that and just to see how long it is. You really are impacting families and kids and teachers and parents all across the world. And so I'm so grateful for your time. I've read your book, Free to Learn, and then recently, over the past few years, have also read this series of four books, which are cute. They're cute to put on your shelf, but they're a collection of a bunch of your articles that you've written over the years, and there's four of them. And so I'm hoping that we can focus today on Mother Nature's Pedagogy, Biological Foundations for Children's Self-Directed Education. But before we get there, I just want to tell people a little bit about you. You've written for Psychology Today for a long time. You're a research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College. You are a part of Let Grow, the Let Grow organization, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. And then if people look at that curriculum, Vitae, they'll see. I mean, I've never seen anyone with so many accomplishments. It is phenomenal. So I love to talk, though, about your most recent article before we dive into the book, where you talk about the decline in children's mental well-being. And you have a tie in there, not necessarily with screens, but with what screens are taking away in terms of time for children. So could we start there about, obviously, everybody knows that there is sort of this mental health emergency, it's being called, and how that relates to a decline in sort of self-structured time for children. Yeah, so I think what you're referring to is a article that's in press in the Journal of Pediatrics. I was delighted the Journal of Pediatrics accepted this article. I'm trying to get the message out to pediatricians, to family doctors, because they play a fairly big role in talking with parents, advising parents about, you know, answering parents' questions about their children. And people who uh, in the medical world who work with children are well aware of the high rates of anxiety and depression, even terrible to even mention suicide among school-aged children, uh, that these are at record levels today. And my belief is that many of the theories about why this uh, high anxiety and depression are at least somewhat off track, if not entirely off track. I think that the primary reason is that we have been depriving children of uh, what children really need, which is free play, <laughs> time away from adults, time playing with other kids, <laughs> uh, time in which they can show to themselves that they're capable of uh, making their own decisions, that they're capable of solving their own problems, they're capable of making friends, they're capable of dealing with the bumps in the road of life. This is how children are designed to learn, how they're designed to develop resilience as they play. They play sometimes in risky ways, they get into trouble and they figure out how to get out of trouble. They hurt themselves and they figure out what to do about it and so on and so forth. They make friends one day and then that friend hates them the next day and they figure out what to do about that. And through play and in and all the other things you learn in play, <laughs> this is how children grow up. This is what I'm really talking about in that little book you talk about, about Mother Nature's pedagogy. This is how Mother Nature designed children to learn 
the really hard lessons of life, uh, the lessons of how to take control of your of your own behavior. So we've been depriving children with every decade here in the United States and throughout much of the rest of the developed world, we've been depriving children ever more of the opportunities to do things independently. And it's not just play, it's also uh, being able to travel by yourself, going to school by yourself, going downtown by yourself, going out shopping by yourself. And it's also even part-time jobs. You know, it wasn't that long ago that kids had paper routes, they did babysitting, they mowed lawns, they did all kinds of things. By the time they were 11 or 12 years old, they had uh, some kind of, often some kind of responsible job where they were proving to themselves, among other things, you know, I can do a job. I can show up on time. I can do the work and I get paid a little bit for it. And I, you know, these are all steps in growing up. And we've taken these steps away from children because we're overprotecting them. We're so afraid of uh, dangers, mostly somewhat imaginary dangers out there. And we are so focused on the idea that children develop best when they're taught and guided and monitored and protected by adults. So we're not giving children enough time away from that kind of surveillance and constant telling what to do. You know, mm. So our children are not growing up realizing that they can take control of their life, knowing how to take control of their life. So that's the message of it. And, and it's supported by in this article by uh, convergence of many different lines of research, all of which tend to support this view. You know, you mentioned screens and technology. I don't think that's the fundamental problem. I think that the way some people look at it, there's a little bit of truth to it, but I also think that the reverse is a little more true. So the way a lot of people look at it is that technology and particularly video games and YouTubes and social media is so seductive to children that it is keeping children kind of glued to the iPhone or the computer and that's why they're not going outside. My experience is that when children are truly free to go outside and there's lots of kids to play with outside, there's interesting things to do outside, then children tend to choose a balance. They do go out if their friends are out there, if other people are out there. But we're now in a world where if you send your kid outdoors, there's nobody there to play with. There's nothing interesting to do. And so, of course, the kid is going to get on his or her smartphone and communicate with kids in the only way that he or she can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think we're blaming technology for something that is really being caused by society as a whole. I don't want to blame parents in particular. I don't want to blame teachers in particular. But our whole society has this overprotective view of children that also we, you know, maybe because it's we're all adults and it's adults who write the articles and stuff, we overemphasize the role of adults in children's lives and underemphasize the role of other children in children's lives. Children, you know, of course they love their parents, of course they need their parents, but on a day-to-day -day basis, children are way more concerned with their connections with their friends <laughs> than they are with their parents. Mm-hmm. And they're learning. They're learning through those connections. That's one of the things that you talk about. And they're learning, and it's very appropriate they're most concerned with connecting. Their peers, these are their future mates, their future workmates, their future friends. This is their cohort. These are the people they need to know how to get along with. They don't need specifically to know how to get along with us older people <laughs> who are on our way out in some sense, right? I mean, I hate to say that, but in some sense, of course they learn from us. Of course they care about us and so on and so forth. But we overemphasize that and underemphasize the importance of children's interactions with other children away from adults. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the most interesting parts I read in the book was when you started to talk about age four and how you had memories in this particular book about when you were four and a situation with your grandmother, she sends you off, maybe you could tell that story. And it reminded me of my own dad who had a paper route around age five or six. Five or six, he had a paper route wow. in the early 60s. And he tells a story about how his shoe came untied and he had to figure out how to tie it himself in order to continue on his paper route. 
But can you tell us about age four and your memory of age four? And what should we, there's a lot of parents on here who have children that are that age. And I thought that part of your book was incredibly interesting. Yeah, well, there's actually a, a certain amount of evidence that age four kind of represents a major transition in children's life around age four, you know, plus or minus a several months or more. It doesn't always happen. But generally speaking, around age four, children have internalized language well enough that they're able fundamentally to talk to themselves, which really means they're able to think verbally about what they're doing. They're able to question themselves about what they're doing. They're able to think rationally, is another way of saying it. They're able to remember rules. Mm. They're even able to create safety rules for themselves. It's not surprising from that point of view that these are kind of, this kind of comes from developmental psychology research, what I've just described, cognitive development research. There's a, sort of a big change. And it's also around age four, not coincidentally, that children also begin to want to get away from their parents for a while. <laughs> they begin to want, I mean, younger children don't want to, for the most part, don't want to stray off. There's something in their DNA that says, you know, I'm in danger if my mom or dad or some other adult who cares for me isn't nearby. I'm not going to go crawling off or walking off. I'm going to hang around. And in fact, if they leave me, I might even cry to get them back, right? But this begins to change around age four, where now the child wants a little bit of independence, wants to get away, wants to not always be told what to do, wants not to always be protected, wants to do it my way. No, don't help me. I want to do it my way. There's this kind of change that occurs. When you look at hunter-gatherer cultures, which I did in not by direct observation, but by interviewing anthropologists a number of years ago, surveying anthropologists, reading the literature, what seems to be the case is it's around age four in those cultures that the adults begin to say, the children have common sense. Uh, we don't need to watch these children all the time. They can run off into the jungle with the other kids. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still being kind of guarded by the older kids, but there's the sense they don't really need to be monitored by adults. They've now got enough sense that they're not going to do something really, really stupid. Of course, all of us can do something really, really sure. stupid, whether we're four or regardless of our age, but they're not much more likely than anybody else to do something really, really stupid mm -hmm. is kind of the thinking. It's also no coincidence that the kind of school that my son went to and where he's a staff member now and that I write about, these democratic schools like the Sudbury Valley School, where children are not watched all the time, they're not being protected, they're free to play outdoors, they're none of those schools will accept anybody under age four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even with the four-year-olds, of course, you have to have, a, for everybody, you have to have visiting week to know that they are responsible enough to follow the rules that they're not going to do something crazy like run out into a busy street or get lost in the nearby woods or something like that or uh, fall into the pond, that they can control themselves, they know what the rules are and can follow them. And it's interesting that it's around age four that that's true. Mm -hmm. So the story that you're referring to that I tell is about my own memory. One of my earliest very clear memories, we, were, we lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota at that time, a big city. Uh, we lived in a, on a very busy street. We lived in a duplex in a kind of working class neighborhood. And I recall that my grandmother asked me to go. She said, okay, it's time for you to learn to go out and buy something all by yourself. Wow. <laughs> and so she gave me the money, probably at that time a nickel, uh, to go and buy a popsicle. <laughs> I could buy a popsicle at a store that was roughly two blocks away. I had to cross at least one busy street to do it. Now, she had shown me how to cross streets, you know, wait for the, this was, there were stoplights, wait for the stoplight, even, after, even when it's green, look both ways, be careful. I mean, she wasn't, a negligent grandmother, mm -hmm. she cared about my safety. And at that time, instead of telling children, you can't do this or that, the message more often was, 
yeah, we want you to do this or that, but do it safely. And these are the safely safety rules. And so basically she had shown me, she had walked with me previously to that very same store, talked to me about how to cross streets. And the first time that it occurred, she sat on the stoop outside of the duplex and watched me at least as far as she could see me, probably watched me as I was crossing that busy street. And I bought the popsicle and I came back and I felt I had this very strong feeling of pride. I had done this very independent thing. Mm -hmm. Children feel good when they do something independent. I can do this. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm growing up. I can do these this kind of grown-up thing. And so, of course, her ulterior motive for doing this was she was a little bit lame. She didn't like walking very far. I think she exaggerated her lameness, to tell you the truth. But she was a little bit lame. She also like to smoke. This this was before we really knew all the horrors of smoking that we know now. But she smoked, but she also, because at that time, it was sort of not regarded as quite appropriate, especially for women to smoke. So she kind of smoked in secret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> But I knew she smoked and uh, she knew I knew. So she would send me out to buy cigarettes for her. <laughs> so I, I think that was one of her ulterior motives for having me be able, this was the same store that sold popsicles, also stored cigarettes. And at that time, you could be four years old and buy <laughs> cigarettes for your grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a different world from today. But at any rate, that was a, a clear memory I have. You know, we moved from that town. We moved from Minneapolis to a much smaller village uh, after that. And by the time I was five, I was riding a bicycle all over town with my friend Ruby Lou, which I talk about in Free to Learn, who is a little bit older than me, but not much. And that kind of freedom was common for kids in those days. Today, you know, I know 11 and 12-year-olds who aren't allowed to ride their bike wherever they want. Right. And that's one of the quotes that I have from this particular book, where you say, children today sadly exist in a world in which adults have become convinced that children are not competent at age four, And many believe that they are not competent even at age 8 or 12. And so you talk about how 12-year-olds today don't even have the same independence that 4-year-olds used to have. So one of the things, one of your huge messages is that kids are competent and they are capable. And within this particular book, you're talking about they're even capable of directing their own education. And I think it's interesting that you brought up your son because you really give these eye-opening stories of how things used to be. Your son went to Europe by himself at age 13. And that's something for people to read. It's in Free to Learn and it's also in this Mother Nature's Pedagogy. But And I love how you say, I don't want to one-up Lenore because Lenore Skenazy's got the Free Range Kids book and she let her son go on the subway when he was nine. She got deemed America's worst mom. And I know you have your Let Grow organization that you work on together. But you, know, you say, I don't want to one-up her, but here's what we did in our family. But you read these stories, age four, age 13, working and it causes you to stretch your understanding of what children are capable of, what their capacity is. So can we switch to something that's in a similar vein about what children are capable of, but how they educate themselves, self-directed education, you have the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. How does that work? So how do children educate themselves? In some sense, I would argue that all of us, to the degree that we're educated, are primarily self-educated, whether or not we went to school. To really learn something, you need to be motivated to learn it. You need to want to learn it. You need to immerse yourself in it. You need to make it part of you. That all comes from you. (laughs) Nobody can make you do that. (laughs) Nobody can really make you love this, immerse yourself in it, want to learn it. Teachers try. They try valiantly. This is the lesson today. They study how to motivate children, how to get them to want to, but it doesn't work. (laughs) I mean, it works a little bit. And some teachers are very talented on it. I don't want to disparage that. But, you know, you've got 30 kids in the class. You're not going to get everybody to just love quadratic equations because that's on the curriculum right now (laughs) or to want to know how to conjugate Latin verbs or whatever it is that you're doing or at an earlier level that you're not going to want in kindergarten or first grade where we start to teach reading skills 
you're not going to find that everybody in there has any interest in reading at that time in their life or feels any need or even understands the point of reading. And so you end up forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. And when people are forced to do something that they don't want to do, including forced to try to learn something that they're not interested in learning, then people appear kind of stupid. You know? mm. We all do. You yeah. know? If I'm not immersed in this and I'm just being required to do it, you know, we get a little better at it maybe as adults because we do so much of it. But it's not the same thing as if I just really, really am interested in this and really want to learn it. Or for some reason at this time in my life, I really, really need to know this. Mm. So the idea of self-directed education is that children come into the world biologically designed to educate themselves. That's really the theme of that little book, Mother Nature's Pedagogy, that you referred to. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by Mother Nature's Pedagogy, that Mother Nature has endowed human beings from childhood on with these educative drives. So what are these drives? You know, there's no mystery to them, really. Curiosity. Mm -hmm. Children are extraordinarily curious. We all are curious, unless that's somehow been destroyed in the course of our life. But we are by nature curious. We want to understand the world around us. We want to know. And children, there's research showing that children really, from the moment they're Within a few hours after they're born, they're already exploring the world. They're already looking at things around them. There's experiments that show that if a child is just a few hours old, you show them a particular pattern and they look at it. Their eyes are just able to fix. They look at it and now you show them a choice between that pattern and a new one. They spend more time looking at the new one. It's as if I kind of already explored that one, but what's this one over here? Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. And by the time children can move around, by the time they can crawl, why are they moving? They're moving to get to things, to explore them. They're moving, what's over there? What if I 
you know, oh, that, you know, they want to know what would happen if I grabbed this vase off the table and dropped it on the floor. You know, they're, they're not being naughty, they're being curious. What would happen if I did this? They want to get their hands on everything. They want to manipulate everything. They're especially curious about what can I do with this mm-hmm. thing? This is a kind of a special human curiosity. What can I do with this? Because we're kind of tool makers and tool users. We want to know what are the properties of everything that might be useful to me. So children naturally do this. In our culture, at least, as children grow older and they have language, they begin to ask a lot of questions. They begin to pay a lot of attention to what other people are doing. They overhear. I think that children learn more by overhearing what adults are saying than by being taught by adults because they're curious. We all like to eavesdrop, (laughs) right? And children do too. And what adults are saying to one another is generally much more interesting than what adults are saying to children. I mean, think of the way we talk to children. We ask them stupid questions like, what color is that? Or, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know we, we patronize them in some way. So the, uh, when they're just listening to what adults are saying to one another, that's way more interesting. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're learning by paying attention to what other people are doing. If there are other kids around, especially older kids, they're paying attention to that. So that's curiosity. And then curiosity is the drive really to acquire knowledge, to acquire an understanding of uh, the world around you, how it works. And that's part of education. The other part of education is acquiring skills, acquiring the abilities to do things. And play serves the function of acquiring skills. So I think of curiosity and the drive to play as sort of the complementary primary parts of the drive to educate yourself. So children all over the world, when they have ample time to play, which unfortunately is not true for most of our children in our culture today, but when they have ample time to play, they play at all the basic skills that human beings have to learn everywhere. They play at building things. You know, we're the animal with opposable thumbs. We build things. That's one of the primary characteristics of a human being. They play at language. That's how they develop language. They play, you know, we, nobody teaches children their native language. Mm-hmm. They learn the native language by overhearing it, by mimicking it, right. by their whole babbling and cooing is making the sounds of language and in a playful way. First words are always used playfully. They're never used really functionally to ask for anything. And as children get older, they play with the constructions of language and so on. And as they begin to play socially, they're communicating with language in their play. So language is developed in play. Uh, Hypothetical reasoning, the ability to imagine things that don't really exist and then think about those things that don't really exist. Children as young as three and four years old in their imaginative play are doing that. It's hypothetical reasoning. Imagine, you know, the example I give, often give is, you know, one little child says, oh, there's a troll under the bridge. They're pointing to the kitchen table. And the uh, so they're imagining the kitchen table is a bridge and that there's a troll under the, They don't even have to say we're imagining. They know that, that's, mm-hmm. that there's no troll under the bridge, but they're pretending there's a troll under the bridge. And then another child will say, well, oh, we better not go under the bridge then because, it's, because the troll could be dangerous. Another child might say, well, let's give the troll a cookie so it won't eat us. And this is all high order thinking. This is thinking about something abstractly, thinking about something that we know doesn't really exist. But if it did exist, what would be the consequences? What would be the way to deal with this situation? Mm -hmm. So they're playing with the highest way of human thinking, which distinguishes us from other animals. However else children play, they also want to play with other children. You know, sometimes you want to play alone, but mostly children want to play with other children. And why is there such a strong drive to play with other children, and especially to play with other children away from adults? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason is, as I hinted at before, maybe the most important thing that children have to learn is how to get along with peers, how to make friends, how to please your playmate while at the same time pleasing yourself, mm-hmm. how to know if your playmate is happy or not happy because if the playmate is not happy, they'll leave, they'll quit, they'll go away, and that leaves you sad and alone. Mm-hmm. So play is really a way that children are learning what I regard as the most important human skill, which is how to get along with other people. Mm-hmm. 
how to negotiate, how to compromise, how to be empathic in the sense of being aware of what this other person is feeling at this given time. And children are pretty good at learning this, and they learn it in play. They practice it in play. We are also an animal that has to follow rules, norms and rules, unlike mm-hmm. other animals, much more so than other animals. We can't just behave according to our whims and wishes. Right. We need to control ourselves. In order to live in a human society, we need to control ourselves. We can't do just whatever comes to mind. We have to behave in accordance with what's socially acceptable, what the law says we can do or can't do, but even more than that, what the people around us find acceptable or not acceptable. Somebody who can't do that, you know, we say they're behaving like an animal. Like we're almost saying they haven't acquired the ability to be a human being, Mm -hmm. which is to control themselves. Well, children all the time in play are learning to control themselves because in play, you know, people talk about unstructured play, but the truth is play is always structured. It always has structure. It always has boundaries and rules. You're playing at something. And when you're playing at something, you have to control yourself to be within those boundaries, to be following the implicit rules of what you're doing. And so, children in play are practicing the ability to control their impulses and focus on what they're doing and abide by the agreed upon, and they might just be implicitly agreed upon. You don't necessarily have to state them. Mm -hmm. I mean, one way of, of illustrating this is to think of a couple of boys play fighting. So, it looks wild. They're chasing one another around. They're swinging sticks at one another. They're pushing one another. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, adults often confuse this with real fighting or they think it's dangerous and they stop it. But this is a normal way for boys to play, especially boys. Boys do this more often than girls. But the point I want to make here is that looks wild, but it actually has very clear rules. And the boys in wow. this play have to follow the rules. All right, you can you can swing sticks, but you can't actually hit the person with the stick. You can hit their other stick. You can push the person, but you push them on something soft, the grass, not the sidewalk, or the couch, not the hard floor. If you're the bigger and stronger of the two, you have to self-handicap. If you're the much smaller, you can hit with all your force. But these are the rules of these are they don't even have to be stated. They're understood implicitly. But if one of them violates the rule, if one of them maybe accidentally does hit the other person in a way that hurts. The other person will, then the rule will be stated very clearly, hey, that really hurt. You know, no hitting, <laughs> you know. Wow. It just shows an immense self-control for young kids. It shows kids. immense self-control. That's fascinating. This is right. And, and, you know, the great developmental psychologist, the Russian developmental psychologist in the 1930s, Lev Vygotsky, argued that the primary, his view was that the, the most important thing children learned in play was self-control. Wow. Uh, how to abide by rules and norms. Uh, so this idea has been around for a long time, but we've kind of forgotten it. We, we tend to think of play as uncontrolled. When we use this word unstructured play, and I, I would ban that word. I don't think play is ever unstructured. It's <laughs> mm, that's so interesting. I did notice it. I noticed it in the literature that you yeah. use self-structured, and I thought that was really interesting. Right. It's a good word to use. Right. And wow, and you talk in this book, The Mother's Nature's Pedagogy, about play and, well, actually, this was in the, the newest article. Everyone talks about what is play, and they try and define it. But in this newest article that you have, the one you talked about was for the pediatricians, you talked about how children would describe play. How do children describe play? Yeah, so the point I'm making there is that we often use the word play to include activities that are being organized by adults and structured by adults, uh, proposed by adults. So, for example, in schools, people talk about using play as a vehicle for learning. So the teacher will set up certain activities for the children to, quote, play at, and but the activities are being proposed by the teacher, the basic structure of the activity, the goal of the activity is proposed by the teacher. I'm not necessarily opposed to that, 
uh, maybe it is a good way to teach a lesson. Maybe the children are enjoying the lesson more when it's done this way than in just a straight lecture or worksheet format. So I'm not against that. But the point I'm making is I don't call that play, nor do children. Right. <laughs> children don't understand that as play. Wow. When you ask children, there are a number of studies now that in various ways have fundamentally asked children to distinguish between play and not play. One of the primary distinguishing characteristics is that if there's an adult present who appears to be controlling things, or even might be controlling things, mm -hmm. the child says, no, that's not play. Wow. You can have children doing the exact same thing in another picture, but no adult present, and they'll say, yes, that's play. So in children's minds, children play, real play, what they want to call play, is an activity that they are choosing to do themselves and are controlling themselves. And, they are, and if there's an adult there, the assumption is that the adult is kind of controlling it, telling them what to do, correcting them when they're wrong, solving their problems for them, and so on and so forth. And that's not real play. And from my point of view, as a person who studies play and talks about the value of play, this idea that play is self-controlled and self-directed is a really primary part of play because this is where children learn to control themselves, where mm -hmm. children learn to solve their own problems, where they learn to initiate their own activities. That's a primary purpose of play. And of course, if there's an adult there doing that for them, they're not learning wow. that. And at some level, children understand that. Mm. And they understand that real play, yeah. <laughs> the kind of thing that I am really want to do, and they may not articulate this, but at some level in their DNA, I would say they know that they're learning something really important when they're mm -hmm. playing on their own away from adults wow. to get destroyed if adults are wow. present. It's so interesting, this thought of adult-centered decisions. And that's a theme that runs all the way through this book and through your writing, that even our definition of play, I never thought about it. What do kids, what would kids define play as? And they define it as when we're not involved. Right. And so it's so interesting to think about right. the kids and their view of it. And going along with the adult-centered piece, you know, I used to teach in the public school system, and I taught high school math, and I tried to incorporate games. It's, inter it's interesting. Right. Hindsight is interesting to look back, but you're bound within the structure of the school system, and I felt that right. it was very adult-centered and very centered on adults who aren't even in the classroom, who aren't with the kids, who want the data, who are wanting this overall picture of the school to look a certain way. And so you write in your book, when you talk about this a lot, you are the one with these bold statements. You say, we don't have to educate children. We don't have to educate children. How do people respond to you? Do they get mad? It's interesting. I, I think that there's two ways people respond. One is um, a lot of people, when they think about it, when they hear about it, agree. Yeah, that makes sense <laughs> when, they under, mm -hmm. when I elaborate on that point. And I think the other people ignore it. <laughs> I don't get a lot of arguments about it. I really don't get a lot of arguments about it. I, I often wish I would. I would rather that people who don't agree with me say, well, here's why I don't agree. Let's have a discussion about that. Let's have a debate about it. Let's uh, argue and print about it. It doesn't seem to happen. That's interesting. I wonder why. I wonder why that is because it does seem that people are yeah. very – they're very caught caught up is the wrong word. They're very attached to the decisions that they make about their own children. And obviously so. Right. And so, I mean, that is a huge statement to say we don't have to educate children. And yet we're spending 15,000 hours of childhood educating children. And so you have these right. old statements. Maybe part of it is because the people that come to your readings. So I would be one. I came to your readings because I wanted to structure childhood. And I couldn't because we had too many young children. Right. And so what your books gave me was freedom. They gave me understanding. They gave me a path forward. And then I've been able to see how our kids flourish. And I almost wonder if that's why, if you're talking to, you're writing to the people who really need that information. 
and are using it. I think it, I, th- I think it is true that the people who read what I'm writing and the people you know who are likely to talk to me are, tend to be people who are already kind of in agreement. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, very. So I, I also I want to elaborate a little bit on what do I mean by we don't have to educate children. I don't want to say that there's no role for adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that we can, we're just abrogating responsibility and toss, throwing our kids out onto the street. That's mm-hmm. not what I mean. Right. <laughs> what I mean is that children, and usually the way I follow this up, is children educate themselves, but they need a, um educationally rich environment mm-hmm. to do that. We have a responsibility as adults to provide that environment. Whether if we're homeschooling to provide that environment at home and in the community by helping our children find connections in the community, by finding, you know, nobody's going to learn to read if you're growing up in an environment where nobody reads, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's going to learn to use numbers, uh, make calculations. If you're growing up in an environment where nobody does that, or nobody's going to learn how to cook if you're growing up in a world where nobody cooks. You have to be in a world where people are doing these things. Nobody's going to learn how to think deeply about political or philosophical or religious issues, whatever it is, and if nobody in your environment is talking about these things. So the great thing about a school like the school that my son went to is they don't say we educate children. They don't try to educate children in the sense of teaching them, in the sense of measuring their learning, in the sense of believing there are certain things that is really important they learn by a certain age, and we're going to try to make sure they do that. But what they do do, and the adults play a, a role in this, is provide an environment in which there's lots of opportunities for the children to educate themselves. So there are a lot of books there. There are computer before everybody had their own computer. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there were computers there. There's cooking equipment. There's uh, woodworking equipment. There's an outdoor area. There's lots of sports equipment. There's places where you can. Mm-hmm do art and do music. And there's a good number of people and there are adults who are represent different realms of interest and ability. And so this is an environment that it's easy for children to find interesting things to do and uh, in which they almost can't help but learn because, you know, let me just take an example. So let's talk about learning to read because this is something that so many people are concerned about. How will children learn to read if nobody's teaching reading courses, right? So I got interested. How do children at Sudbury Valley learn to read? And how do children in unschooling, home unschooling families learn to read where they're not being deliberately taught to read, although they might be offered some help if the child asks for help. There's nothing, you know, that says you can't do that if the child wants help, right? So what at Sudbury Valley, what we observe is that children who can't read are surrounded by older children who can read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're playing games sometimes that involve reading with these older children. Uh, they're also very often, teenagers love to read to little kids. They're being read to by teenagers. And sometimes the teenagers are pointing out the words, not, you know, maybe kind of half-heartedly teaching them to read and doing that, but just kind of pointing out the words mm-hmm. on the page as they're doing it, just like parents do when they're reading to their kids. And uh, also, children, the younger children are seeing the value of reading. Yeah. They're learning, hey, reading would be a good thing to do. You know, the, the five-year-old who can't read maybe envies the seven and eight-year-olds who are reading comic books and laughing about them and telling stories about what they've read. Mm-hmm. And they say, I want to join that club. I want to know how to read. Once you've got the motivation to do something like learning to read, that's the biggest part of the, that's the biggest hurdle. Once you've wow. got that motivation, it's not that hard to learn. Wow. I mean, that's a huge statement. You would never think that in our society, it's not that yeah. hard to learn. To read. Oh, it's not that hard. Our society makes it seem like it's the most complicated, arduous task. Let me let me give some of the evidence that it's not that hard to learn to read. So one of the things we know is that there are some children, these are children that have brains just like all children do. They're not special children in some way. They're human beings. They're just children. There are some children who can read well before they're four years old and nobody taught them. Wow. <laughs> 
one of the reasons I got interested in this is my son happened to be one of those people. My youngest brother also happened to be one of those people who just picked up reading. And nobody, I didn't teach him to read. His mother didn't teach him to read. How did he learn to read? Well, there's a certain sense, you could say, in which he used us to learn how to read. He used us, and he got interested in reading. So the way I picture it with my son is at the time that he was a, a baby and a toddler, I was a graduate student, and almost the only thing I did at home was read. You know? mm -hmm. And so, you know, he came into a world, he looked around, and he said, okay, what people do in this world is they read. <laughs> you know, I better learn how to read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's my assumption. That's what happened. And his mom was a big reader, and his mom liked to read to him, and his mom would read to him a lot. So he was in a world where reading was a big part of the world that he was in. The other thing is we used to carry him around. This We lived in New York City at the time, and strollers, are, in my mind, are useless in New York mm -hmm. City and buggies, you know. So we'd carry him around in a backpack mm -hmm. on our back, and he would be facing forward so he could see whatever his mom could see or I could see. And I, what I know is when I would carry him, he would, he, because he was interested in reading, he and I think you know this is maybe a slight exaggeration, but the way I remember it is his first word was "What's that say?" <laughs> wow! <laughs> and he'd point to a sign and say "What's that say?" So I think the first word he could read was "exit," <laughs> and, you know. So he. He would ask, and then at the breakfast table, he'd look at the cereal box. And he'd say, what's that say? He would make us tell him what these, he would ask us what these words were saying. And he picked up enough sight words, I'm sure, that at some point he was reading little books by himself. The first time I recognized that he had somehow inferred, without being taught, he had somehow inferred the basic rules of phonology that so that he could sound out words that he had never seen before, mm -hmm. was we were visiting a town square. I think I tell this story in Free to Learn. We were visiting a, a town square in a small town in New England, and there was a monument, a Civil War monument there. And, uh, of course, like other Civil War monuments, these are the men who fought and died to save the Union. Mm -hmm. So he came over to me after looking at that, and he said, why would men fight and die to save an onion? <laughs> That's in this one, too. I, I read that. <laughs> yeah, is it in there, too? So this was, so he had read it phonetically. I mean, the word... <laughs> Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. So you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops' price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code OUTSIDE120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code OUTSIDE120 at goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120 code OUTSIDE120. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. 
Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. You know, U-N-I-O-N pronounced phonetically should be onion. Wow. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so it was my first indication that he could read phonetically, that he was working out the, he was working out what, and he was, wow. he was not yet four years old. So now it turns out that my son is not unique, that there is research on these so-called precocious readers. And the stories that are found are pretty much the same. They're not people who, it's not that the parents, you know, try to teach them phonetics or put labels on the furniture so that children would pick up all these sight words. The parents weren't deliberately teaching reading. But it tended to be in households where the parents did read a lot, where reading was part of the environment. But that's in itself not sufficient because within the same home, you can have one child who can read before age four and another child can't read at all by that age, has no interest in reading. And so somehow, I think the critical thing in learning to read is engagement. For whatever reason, at whatever age, you really want to know how to read. <laughs> and when you want to know how to read, it's not that hard to do it. A three-year-old can do it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, my story is that our youngest, and I'm I'm going with this approach. She's our fifth. She's our youngest. She's six. All the other ones I waited yeah. and then, but we did a book. And I'm I'm curious with her. I'm so curious about this approach. But we did have this experience where the kids were writing their names on strips to put them in a hat to pull out for a game. Yeah. And she was four and she'd never written anything. I hadn't taught her how to write her name, but she knew letters. You know, we yeah. talk, we read, she know, we, we sing little songs. Right. And because she wanted her name on that strip of paper to go in the hat, she sure as heck took one and wrote her name right out. Right. I think mean, she knew the whole, it's like, what? But that motivation piece, and I know John Holt talks a lot about that with language, that what we do, we don't right. teach kids how to speak. They learn because they want to communicate. And so that motivation right. piece is huge. It's Everything you write is so fascinating. I am so curious. Here's what I'm really curious about. Things have changed. There aren't kids outside anymore. Kids can't go to work when they're 12 and get a job so that they can go to Europe when they're 13. And there's these sort of societal constructs that have changed. Obviously, there's a limitless supply of screen entertainment. If you, I try and put myself in your position and we have lightened up and included more freedom and we're working on the time and the space and making sure that kids have these that they're doing that's what they want to do they want to do real things they want to do right if you had little kids today and let's say you didn't have access to Sudbury Valley if you had little kids today in this day and age how would you structure your time how would I structure the child's time? Yeah, just how would you structure your family life and childhood if, let's say, today you had a, a four or five-year-old? It's a, it's a really, really good question and, um, and not an easy one to answer. I guess what I would do is, which is one thing that I advise parents, if you have a choice of where to live, <laughs> there are still places where there are other kids and you see kids outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know of a couple of places uh, in the eastern Massachusetts where they're kind of on cul-de-sacs. They're places where you still see kids running around outdoors, running into each other's homes, <laughs> you know, the old-fashioned. It still can exist. It does not exist in the wealthiest neighborhoods. <laughs> the more wealthy you are, the more likely you are to gate yourself off, to uh, have the kind of immaculate lawn that you don't want kids running around on, to mm-hmm. <laughs> look for a more working class place. You're more likely to be kids playing with, to play with there. Uh, look for where there's a concentration of kids. Avoid, you know, I'm advising people to avoid the places that real estate agents think are big sells. Mm. Avoid the place with the so-called best schools. 
avoid those places because the kids in the so-called best schools are the ones suffering the most. Mm -hmm. This is not my research. This is research primarily by a woman named Sonoya Luther, who has been studying anxiety and depression and so on in children and teens and finds that the highest rates are in those who are attending what are called high achievement schools. They can be public schools, they can be private schools, but they're schools that put a lot of emphasis on high test scores, on getting into fancy colleges and so on, Mm -hmm. and advertise themselves because they are successful in doing that. Mm -hmm. But what Luther finds, no surprise, is that the children in those schools from kindergarten on really are, uh, though she's focused primarily on teenagers, are very stressed Mm -hmm. out because they feel this pressure. They feel a sense of failure if they're not achieving in the sense um, and the parents get drawn into this and the children are begin to judge themselves as failures. So, so avoid the kinds mm. of places where schools are going to put additional pressure. The other thing I think that, I think that it's, I think that what I would also do, I'll give you an example of something that, uh, of some things that people actually have done with some success. So one approach is to Say you move into a neighborhood and you've got little children and you know there are other children who live in this neighborhood, but you never see them outdoors. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you see, you know they're there because they're waiting uh, for the school bus in the morning and they get left off of the school bus and their parents are standing right there to take them into the house so that nobody snatches them away as they walk from the school bus into their front door, right? Mm-hmm. So you know they're there, but they're not outdoors playing. So one approach is to create a kind of a play area in your own yard and make it so attractive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and make it very publicly available. So there's a book uh, called Playborhood, Mm -hmm. and I'm for some reason blanking on the author's name even. Yes, I know. His name is Mike Lanza. Mike Lanza, right. So he wrote a book a few, uh, some years ago, about 10 or 11 years ago, maybe longer ago, called uh, Playborhood about what he did. And in that book, he also describes what some other neighborhood people did in other very different neighborhoods from his. His is a fairly wealthy neighborhood uh, in California. It's probably high tech people who are living there. And um, even though the yards are small, this is a very expensive property. Mm-hmm. But what he did is he put a sandbox in the front yard. He put sort of a water play fountain area. He put up a whiteboard that kids could draw on. He made a sort of a little basketball area on the driveway, a kind of a nice uh, basketball area. He wanted to attract kids, not just little kids, but kids the whole age range. Wow. And the other thing that the Lanzas did is they put out their picnic table in the front yard rather than the backyard. So everybody could, when they were sitting outdoors, everybody could see them. (laughs) And you never saw anybody else in that neighborhood, but you couldn't help but see the Lanzas. (laughs) And if you were out walking your dog or whatever brought you outdoors, you might stop and chat with the Lanzas. And so, of course, they'd comment on all this stuff. And he would say, you know, your kids are welcome to come over here and play whenever they want. We don't even have to be here. You can still come over and play. So pretty soon, kids are coming over to play. And so he sort of created a little park (laughs) in his neighborhood on the street. And so kids came over to play. And so I visited uh, Mike Lanz, uh, um, maybe it was about three years, three or four years ago. So after his kids were already somewhat older and visited along with a journalist who was writing an article about it and who actually the journalist wanted me to be there too. So she could talk about it with me. And so what we observed is his oldest son, who by that point was about 11 year, 10 or 11 years old, mm-hmm. something like that, still in elementary school, but higher up in elementary school. Whereas other kids were taking the bus to school or being driven to school, he was skateboarding to school. He had a, a friend of his was skateboarding to school. And then after school, uh, and we got permission, the, the journalist and I, to, to sort of follow him, shadow this boy, mm-hmm. you know, with his permission and the father's permission and mother's permission after school. So after school, he skateboarded uh, off to a skateboard park, he and a friend of his who grew up in the same neighborhood playing outdoors including crossing a busy street, including, and, and we followed to the skateboard park. And as far as could tell, 
he and his friend were the only ones in that skateboard park, as young as they were, without some adult there wow. <laughs> uh, observing and monitoring and presumably protecting them. So this seemed to be uh, have some success. Now, Mike Lanza tells me it's still not like the 1950s. It's not even like when the 1970s or whatever it was when he was growing up. But it's it's better than most kids have. Right. You know? Yeah. And so that's one approach. Now, not everybody has a yard that they can create a little park in. Not everybody has the money to do that. So here's another approach in a very different kind of neighborhood. So in his book, he describes um, people, these were parents living in a, a housing project uh, where most people are very poor and you're, the government supported housing project and where it truly is a somewhat dangerous neighborhood. There are drug pushers, there are, there are people with guns, there are, you know, there's, uh, of course, there are guns all over nowadays, but there, there are, uh, but there are some serious dangers, some real, and there's, and there's very busy traffic on the mm -hmm. streets. Um, and so the parents, uh, at least a certain number of parents got together and they said, you know, our kids need to be able to get outdoors and play like we did growing mm -hmm. up. And what can we do to enable that? And so what they did, according to this chapter in Lanz's book, is first of all, they contacted, they got the city to close off the street that go, went wow. by that uh, after school, after certain after school hours, so the kids could play out there on the street. And they got some grandmothers. <laughs> grandmothers wow. are a great source <laughs> to sit out there. Grandmothers in, in this community have a fair amount of authority, right? <laughs> and so grandmothers are sitting out there, you know, ostensibly to drive away the drug pushers, mm -hmm. you know, and to make sure that it's safe. Wow. And so so with the grandmothers sitting out there with the traffic closed off, parents regarded it as this is safe enough for our kids to go out and play there. So that's another way of handling it. So it requires some initiative. In the old days, you could just send your kid outdoors, right? And there'd be other kids outdoors. You didn't have to do anything about it. So, you know, when I say that we don't have to educate children, I don't mean that there's nothing that we adults have to do for our children to become educated. One of the things we need to do is to figure out ways in our society, which is not always easy to do, to allow our children to have access to other children to play with, because that's a huge part of their natural means yeah. of education. Yeah, I love that that's all of your answers sort of revolved around that concept. And I liked when you talked about Mike Lanza that when he put things in his front yard, and this isn't something that would be intuitive, that he put things that would attract kids of all ages. And this has always been one of yes. the things that you've talked about. You say one of the oddest, in my view, most harmful aspects of our treatment of children today is our penchant for segregating them into separate groups by age in and out of school settings. And so it's a neat thing to think about that. You want to attract kids of all ages. I would have thought, well, if I've got a three-year-old, I'm going to put out toys that are mostly for a three-year-old. But no, you want to have all of those different ages coming because it's good for the older ones and the younger ones. It's good for the older ones to be caretakers, good for the younger ones to look up. And I think that's a phenomenal idea. And Angela Hanscom talked about having all-day play dates that were so bound into these times. We have a play date. It's from two to four and it ends. She says, no, be with other kids all day long. Figure out how to deal with the boredom, how to deal with the meals. And so I, I love right. your answer. Your answer is, you would intentionally find ways to create the time and space for kids to play in a multi-age environment. Right. And it's an easy solution. It's a simple it's a simple solution to understand, but not necessarily easy to implement. But the ideas you gave were phenomenal. And even the idea of going skateboarding after school, that's risky. That's an interesting thing for parents to think about. Right. That is a, actually a very risky environment. They're on their skateboards at the skate park, and yet the kids were comfortable enough, right. and so were the parents. So I just want to thank you. You have changed our life. I, I'm sure that people tell you that time and time and time again. But you truly have changed our life with your book, Free to Learn, and with these other books that are fantastic based off of they've taken your articles and put them in books subject related and so those it's great i love reading your articles but it's really nice that they've been packaged into these books that you can take with you can slide it right in your bag i mean it's the perfect size so thank you your your new website is fantastic petergray.org and what you're doing with let grow and the alliance for self-directed education 
and your Facebook. I mean, you're constantly putting out articles of things that right now affect parents and teachers and educators and children and to help us to do this in a way that is, you had a really interesting a really interesting phrase. I have so many notes from this one book, <laughs> but you basically said something like, this is actually the easiest and most natural. Oh, you said trustful parenting, which is what you've been talking about. Trusting the right. child's instincts, judgments, and ability to learn from their own mistakes. Trustful parenting is the most natural and least stressful form of parenting for both parent and child. And isn't that what we're looking for? We're looking to reduce stress for them, but also for us, because it is a stressful time to be a parent. And I love that you talked about that trustful parenting is the most natural and least stressful, is the least stressful way. And and it gives kids what they need for adulthood. They grow their responsibility. So I am profoundly grateful. I know that your book, Free to Learn, has been translated into 18 languages and you have impacted people, I'm, I would imagine, beyond what words can really even say. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that you are have talked about these little these little books because uh, if if uh, people buy them, whatever profits go from the book go to help support the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, yeah. which is playing a, a very valuable role in helping people who have made this decision. It takes a certain amount of courage, as uh, as you probably know, Jenny, to make this decision. That seems to that runs counter to what so what the society seems to believe. It takes courage. It takes support, and the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is involved in providing that. And this is one way that they get a little bit of financial yeah. help yes. if people buy these books. And you can get them. You can go to the website for the Alliance for Self-Directed Education and, yes. and uh, purchase the books through that. I'll make sure I put the link up. The four titles are Mother Nature's yeah. Pedagogy, Evidence That Self-Directed Education Works, How Children Acquire Academic Skills Without Instruction, The Harm of Coercive Schooling. They all match. They're great to put on your shelf. I always like that. They look really good and they're easy to bring along. These small books are collections of some of your most popular articles that were published originally on the blog for Psychology Today. So they're organized by theme and they're fantastic. Like I said, I had... I had all intentions of talking about all four and we got through a smidgen of one. There is so much in here for parents and teachers to learn from and to get courage. I think what you said is absolutely right. It is difficult. It seems kind of odd, but it also makes sense when you read what you write that this is what's really best for everyone, best for the kids, best for the parents, best for the teachers, best for society at large, this trustful, more natural way of raising kids. So once again, thank you for thank you for your time. Thank you for taking an hour. I remember the first time that you agreed to be on our podcast. I, I really couldn't even believe it. I couldn't even believe it that you said yes. And here it is for a second time. So I am thrilled beyond thrilled and so thankful for the ways that you have impacted our little family and that will be a generational impact here. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a, a joy to talk with you. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel 
real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking.